Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey everybody, this is Dr. John and a quick PSA regarding my new virtual men's group that meets on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pacific time. There's only a few spots left, but I thought you might want to know about it. It's a quick, easy, and cheap way to work with me. And maybe some of you have a career. Maybe you've made some money. Maybe you have a reputation for yourself at work. But maybe what you lack is things like happiness or purpose, a fulfilling relationship or a healthy sex life, the passion, happiness, and ease that you once had with your spouse, an emotion other than numbness, disconnection, or irritability. This group is for men who are trying to be values-driven, interested in lifelong learning, and curious about how to become the best possible versions of themselves. The group is not for men who want to remain in the comfort zone while sitting at home watching TV. So again, group meets weekly, Wednesday, 7 p.m. It's only $95 per session, and you can call 510-863-0057 for more details. That's 510-863-0057. And now, on with the show. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. And today, I am psyched to have with me Rebecca Chandler. Rebecca is an author, survivor, and advocate. You're not going to believe her story. Her memoir, It Won't Hurt None, A Story of Courage, Healing, and a Return to Wholeness, came out in February of this year. And it details her journey from the depths of trauma to a place of hope and healing, offering a roadmap for others who are struggling with similar issues. Rebecca lived with Dissociative Identity Disorder, DID, formerly known as Multiple Personality Disorder, and Complex PTSD for most of her life. And she was often misdiagnosed by medical professionals. However, through therapy and self-reflection, Rebecca was able to heal and reclaim her voice and power. And her story is a testament to the human spirit and its ability to overcome even the most devastating of circumstances. Rebecca, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. That was a fantastic intro. I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm, so I'm excited to hear your story. I've heard a little bit of it when we talked originally, but share your story with us. How did you come to develop DID and CPTSD? Yeah. Okay. So um, I was sexually assaulted by my maternal grandfather from the age of five to the age of 13. And sorry, that's awful. It is awful. It's, and unfortunately, the numbers aren't good in terms of how prevalent that is, not only in North America, but around the world. So there's a lot of, a lot of work to be done there. And in addition to sexual trauma, my parents divorced when I was six. So at a time when I was experiencing probably one of the worst, uh, you know, experiences a child can go through, I was also being traumatized by a really just acidic, corrosive divorce. So, so there were fundamental layers that never got developed for me. And trust was obviously one of the key uh, foundational layers that didn't develop. Uh, I didn't have a sense of trust in my environment. And out of those, out of all those experiences, um, I developed complex PTSD, obviously trauma, and my mind chose to protect me 
during years of assault and abuse by disassociation. And a lot of people disassociate. We all kind of daydream and lose ourselves at times. And that's pretty normal disassociation. My disassociation was um, very complex in that my mind actually created what or what some people call alters, personalities. I call them fragments in my book because they feel mm-hmm. like pieces of me outside of myself. And I started to hear from them and and really noticed them when I got into high school. And I started to hear these very clear, distinct voices in my head. And I, when I got through it, started thinking about it, paying attention to them, I gave them all names and I named them by their age. And they were five, six, seven, and 13. Five was my fear. You can imagine at five years old, first being assaulted. Um, Six uh, became the carrier of my shame. And I didn't even recognize that that was possible until nine months ago. I didn't understand that shame attaches, attached to me versus being an altar. I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Seven yeah, was... Yeah, I want to circle back to that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's because it was complicated. Yeah. Seven was my sadness. And I think that the sadness not only came out of the assault, but also the divorce. It was just a, an overwhelmingly sad state. 13 was my anger. And I was 13 years old one, and one night in the kitchen at my grandparents' house, my grandfather tried to sexually assault me. And I fought back and I physically fought back and I threatened his life. And that was the end of sexual assault with my grandfather. Yeah. And so I came to know these, these altars, these fragments. 13 was the noisiest because she was angry. She's a pissed off teenager. Yeah. And these were all female, correct? All female. Because my understanding is they don't have to be. They don't. And and so just to circle back, so my understanding with DID is that you experience something extremely traumatic at a young age and the core self can't take the abuse any longer. And so the mind as a way to protect itself develops these alters or fragments or pieces to rotate out to the reality to absorb the abuse in your in the place of your core self. That's right. And so yeah. Let's go okay. ahead. Well, yeah. I was just I'm curious about, you know, when the alters would rotate out to the reality, I guess the real world, which even that seems a little dubious, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, did Would your core self remember what was happening? Yes. I, I never, I never um, forgot my abuse, which is, it, which, can be unusual for people. Sometimes people have no recollection whatsoever because the abuse didn't happen to me. It happened to seven. Right. And I didn't have that sort of experience. I always remembered what happened to me. Now, later when I went through this enormously cathartic process inside the somatic work that I did, which took several years to do, I discovered more episodes of abuse. I started to remember more but I don't necessarily consider those repressed. It was just, 
I don't know. I didn't feel necessary to remember them. I don't know. I feel, I think about it differently than a repressed memory. I just think that there were so many memories. And I think what I learned over time is that it was, it was really extraordinary. I learned that seven chose to absorb all of the energy from every assault So instead of creating a new altar for every assault, for example, and you can have, there are people who've had over a hundred altars, you can imagine, right? So I didn't experience that. Seven took it upon herself to absorb the violence and the energy of that violence all on herself. That's a tall task. It's a tall task for a seven-year-old. And so... It was really extraordinary to get to know these fragments to and, and through the somatic experience, talk to them and really find out how they felt about things. And, and five, six, and seven, they're little, they're tiny. A five-year-old weighs as much as a bag of dog food, about 40 pounds, right? They're just little tiny human beings. And they really just wanted to be reassured and loved and, and to be... And to let, I had to let them know I'm an, I'm an adult now. I'm 50, at the time I was 52 years old and we're safe. It's over because these fragments are stuck in time. Mm-hmm. They have no idea that I've gotten older. They have no idea that it, that there isn't evil lurking around the corner, which explains and, your fight and your flight and all of that. Right. Right, And they haven't communicated with your core self, your 52 year old for years, I imagine. Like they don't know they're still living in the same world. That's right. At the same age. That's right. And what I thought was really interesting is they all knew each other. They all talked about each other. Hmm. And um, it was really interesting. So the little ones, five, six, and seven, they just needed to be reassured and loved and embraced. And it didn't take long for them to go, okay, we're good now. They're little, they're little kids that life's not complicated. 13, the pissed off teenager, when I first met her through this meditative somatic experience, she had her back to me and her arms were crossed. And she, it's, this is all dialogue that's in one of the chapters of my book. She looks at me and she's like, you've gotten old. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is going to go well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had to, when I first wrote the first draft of her chapter, and I shared it with a beta reader. My beta reader um, said, why is it that the chapters about five, six, and seven are nurturing and loving and kind? And this chapter is, you hate this bitch and you want her to leave. And I thought, oh, I'm not, I forgot that 13 needs to be loved too. Yeah. And she's she harder was, to love, I imagine. She's harder to love. She's extremely protective of five, six, and seven and didn't trust me at all. I had to prove that I was going to protect all of them before she would even give me a shot at it. And by that, I mean, instead of constantly filling my head with anger and hate and a lack of patience, and that's how she manifested in my daily life, is I had a very quick temper. I was very brash and her anger would just take over and come out. I had to find a way to convince her to give me a chance. Let me show you that I'm going to take care of all of you and that this body that you left 
40 years ago is a safe place now. And, and so 13, it sounds like 13 was your biggest challenge. By far my biggest and challenge. It's fascinating that, and, and thank you for sharing that, because I think it's absolutely true for all of us, that we have those relationships with parts of ourselves where we're just like, <laughs> forgive my language, but you little bitch, I really don't, oh. I don't like you at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think we all have that, right? Like yeah. parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of or fucking hate or yeah. pissed off at or, you know, yeah. disgusted by. Yeah. And they're, and they're talking to you for a reason. And I, what I learned through the whole process, and it was a very complicated, difficult journey, was that they really just needed to be loved and reassured and to feel safe. And I started um, saying a safety mantra out loud when I really started to get into the work, and specifically last year when I was really getting into the, the final steps of this. I woke up every morning and said, my name is Rebecca. I'm 52 years old. I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. It's over. And I needed to say it out loud. And anytime I felt myself get a little bit anxious or I heard five creep in or something happened like that, I would just say out loud, it's over. I'm safe. I'm 52 because my body and my mind were disconnected. I love the mantra and I, I totally get it. And I, I mean, I just, I think that feeling of safety and security, that convincing ourselves that we are safe and secure as a way to deactivate that sympathetic nervous system, that stress yes. response, that fight, flight, freeze, fawn response is critical, right? And I think there's so many of us out there that are living in constant activation with that constant. system. Yes. And yeah. so tell me, tell the, the listeners what you were doing at that time in your life, because that was fascinating to me too. Just your, your professional career. So I spent 30 years as an executive producer in, in marketing, film, and TV, and I moved around the world and lived around the world. And I, I had a really glorious career doing all of that. And then, um, like all good people in, in 2020, COVID kicked my ass in terms of my career. And I was living in Singapore, had to move home. And moving back, I never wanted to move back to America. My, my sense of flight was strong. And I needed physical distance between myself and where I was harmed. And I recognized that that was flight now. I'm also Pisces, so the world isn't big enough for me. So was, like I doubled down on the flight, <laughs> sense of flight. So I had to come back home. And in trying to come back to America at a time that was so upside down, there was a bad election, COVID, the whole thing. And I, I had to start from zero. I had no career here. My, all of my work was global. I'd lived in Africa, Asia, the Middle East. So I came back and I asked myself, well, why am I coming back? There's a reason for everything. Why am I coming back? And, and I, and, and so rather than wallow in the I hate being here-ness of it because it was very difficult to have yeah. my business collapse and all of that. The answer came to me and it was you're going back to finish healing. You've got to go back to where it started to finish healing. Okay, fine. I'll do my best. So it took some time to get to a place where I could do that. And last year I decided, you know what? Part of this healing that I'm here to do is to write my story, to finish my story. Because I started writing it about six years ago. And in the middle of that writing, I felt my mental health slipping. 
And that could have been, I think, the perfect storm of COVID, feeling isolated, being back in a country I don't understand a lot of the time. Um, uh, my mental health just being weary from all of that. Working, consulting, trying to get the hustle figured out and to pay rent and all of that. And I think and writing so much every day about how I felt and writing about my trauma, my mind told me, you know what? You're asking a lot of me right now. You're going to have to go get help right now. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm going to go get help because I know now after so many decades of, of trying to take care of myself and focus on my mental health, that when I start to get off center, I need to listen to that, pay attention to that and go get help. So I did stop hearing the message. Yeah. So I found a somatic uh, worker uh, in LA and I kind of picked up where I left off with my somatic healer in Singapore. And I, the healer is a word that I use. They don't use that word. And my somatic healer in Kenya. And I love somatic work because it's, I truly believe that trauma is trapped energy and the energy will rotate and swirl in your system until you release it. Yeah. It's kind of keeping with Basil Vandercook. Um, you know, the body keeps the score. The body keeps the score. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's amazing how much of what you're saying maps onto internal family systems. Yes. Which, you know, for those of you who are feeling judgmental out there listening to this, <laughs> stop being judgmental. But the thing I love about IFS. What are you is, judging? <laughs> yeah. The, well, the thing I love about IFS is the, the foundation of that theory is that we're all a little bit. DID. Yes, I believe that. Parts kind of swirling around a core self that were alienated from or that were trapped in time that have, you know, been in the experience or the result of some sort of trauma. And I believe, I mean, that maps onto everyone that I've talked to recently, which that idea in and of itself blows my mind. Yeah. And I, I hear a lot of my friends, girlfriends, uh, sadly, most of them have experienced some sort of sexual trauma in their yeah. life. That's just yeah, how so the numbers like are. Four, I believe it's crazy. It's a, yeah. So it's, that's a whole other problem. So, uh, yeah. and what I find now distinguishes me from this very tight and incredibly important group of friends in my life, who, some of whom I've known since I was, you know, five, is that if you're, I was able to recognize my alters get to know them, what I call, um, you know, get, reconcile. I call it reconciliation in my book. Integrate them, meaning they were four distinct entities that I brought back into my body. And there's an actual moment I write about where I went through this incredible battle with my grandfather and I stood my ground inside of this meditative state and I we beat the shit out of him. And I proved to them that I'm here, I'm going to protect you, it's over. And all of a sudden, I saw them inside my body. For the first time since wow. I was five years old, I was a whole person. So that return to wholeness that I referred to in the title of my book is the fact that I finally no longer have pieces of myself associated. Yeah. And I saw 13 in particular, this, this will make you laugh, is that she was elbowing for room. Hmm. And the heaviness I felt of being a complete person was very disorienting at first. It's like I breathing through new lungs. I, it was just, it was a really unusual experience. And so it was visceral. You could feel it. in. Your I could body. feel it. Yeah. And they got 
they went from constantly shouting at me in my head about everything all day long, 24-7, that I would just hear from them from time to time. They got much quieter. I thought, okay, I've reconciled with you. I've integrated you. Now it's time to complete the work. And at some point, I want to release you. I no longer need you. And I, and I think that a lot of people, when I talk to my friends and they describe how, you know, that they have a sadness and I'll say, well, what was the first time you felt that sadness? How old were you? Were you eight? Were you 10? Were you four? Inevitably, everyone has an answer if they think about it. I was seven and someone said something to me. I was in a car accident. I was sexually assaulted, whatever happened. My parents divorced. And my question always to those people is, well, have you thought about sitting down in a meditation or whatever and just talking to that voice? Talking to that part of you. Talking to that part of you and saying, what do you need? It's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I, just going the, back and giving that love and compassion and safety yeah. to those parts of you or those young pieces of you that never felt that. Yes. and And... I've, I find it interesting that, you know, having gone through the journey and I no longer have DID, I never, I, I release these entities, these altars, fragments. I don't hear from them. I don't feel them. I don't have my anger that I had anymore. I still get pissed off. From, don't worry. I'm, I'm still a human being. I'm <laughs> well, still a, yeah. But I don't have, that's not my first reaction to every single situation, which is what it was. Thir- thank you. 13 would just take over everything. And I don't, if I get sad, I don't get suicidally depressed. I don't. So all those things that were happening, these extremes that I was trying to navigate my entire life, they don't exist. I still get sad. I still get depressed. I still get angry, but that's all within the kind of midline, you know? Yeah. And that's, what's been a huge piece for me. It's interesting that you say you kind of release those altars. Like I, was when I had a radio show back almost 20 years ago, I interviewed a pastoral counselor whose focus was dealing with DID individuals that had resulted from ritualistic satanic abuse, usually in the Appalachian mountains. Um, And one of his primary clients had 47 different altars. And because he's a Christian counselor, his approach was to talk to the altars And he was having the conversation with the altars and eventually over time, get them to understand that they were doing more harm than good Yes, and ultimately get them. And again, this is through his lens, get them to accept Christ and get them to, in a sense, end their own lives in the betterment or I guess the betterment for the whole, like they would sacrifice themselves and almost cease to exist, which brought up this really interesting question for me of, what does that mean for souls? Like, okay, the core self has a soul, in my opinion, or energy. Does an altar have a soul that's separate? I, I know. I have a theory. I have my interpretation Please. of that. I, I, uh, I, my soul was split into pieces when my grandfather began to penetrate my body with his own. And I, I'm trying to be a little bit graphic sometimes because I want people to remember what we're talking about. Fair enough. It's not pretty. It's not nice. And in, cre- in, in splitting my soul into these f- 
four other pieces. I wanted to have one soul again. And I didn't, I never needed, felt the sense I needed them to die. I instead, the conversation was with them, I don't need you anymore. And they came back, seven, who turned out to be the ringleader, by the way. I'm not going to, you know, read the book. It's a good story. Okay. Um, <laughs> she, um, she came back at one point and I was talking to all of them at once, which didn't happen very often. And she said, we're going we're gonna to go. And I'd been talking to them and talking to them and telling them that I'm, I'm in a good place. I'm ready for you to guys to go. But then she finally said, yeah, we're going to go. And my grandmother, my, my paternal grandmother, who I loved and adored, who had no association whatsoever to what happened to me, she showed up in this meditation. And this is all new. And did she pass? She's passed. She, okay. she passed a long time ago. Okay. And she said, I'm going to take them now. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready for that to happen. I'm like, I don't know who I am without this. I don't know who am I without these four other personalities. And she's like, don't get romantic about this. She's like, you know, you, you thought about ending your life more than once because of these things. So let's not get romantic about it. And even Seven said, yeah, let's don't get dramatic about this. It's time for us to go. Wow. And so they basically Hollywood ending and I'm a film and TV producer. This is how my brain works. They walked off into the sunset and she took them all. And that was it. That was the end of it. And I thought, so I can't imagine want needing them to die, but maybe that works for some people. Like that kind of ending is the finality that they need in their head to go. It's yeah. over. I needed to know that they were going to be safe. Well, Am I great? You know, die. I think it ceased to exist, and I, I, there's a distinction in my mind there. And yeah. I'm splitting hairs, or, I, or complete integration into the core self. Yeah, I needed to know that they were going to be okay. Yeah, and of all the people that I know that could take care of them and make sure that they were safe, it was my grandmother, my granny sure. Chandler, and that's what my mind created for me. And I think what's really important in all these stories is that. The mind is so powerful and it's going to use what it knows works for you. Now, not everyone's going to go through a somatic experience and benefit from it, but I'm a visual storyteller. That's what I've done for 30 years, right? So my, and my mind knows that. So talk therapy, which is very useful. I find it a little too event-based for me. What happened to you is talk therapy. Let's talk about it. In terms of healing, Somatic works for me because it's a connection between the mind and body and it plays out in my mind. And I, it's a rich story for me and that's how I interpret things. So. Well, and it's, it's interesting to me because in the work I've done with clients with internal family systems, the people that have an active imagination are the ones that do the best with it. Yes. I would the ones imagine. That think visually that yes. you know, they'll tell me, they'll come back and they'll say, oh yeah, I, you know, I talked with this part of me that um, doesn't feel worthy of love, let's say. And this is what he looked like. And this is how he acted, or this is what he sounded like. And like, they have these very vivid. Really vivid, really vivid. IFS works amazingly well with those individuals. Yeah. So and let me circle back and I want to touch on shame. 
Mm. Um, and just kind of get your, so that was seven, six, six. That was bear. That was burdening or bearing the burden of all the shame. What's your, how do you see the shame? So I just want to give a little context about how I met her. So five, uh, seven and 13, I was very aware of from, I said from high school, six was a voice in my head, but I didn't understand I didn't know who she was. I just knew that there was a voice that said really hateful things to me. You're ugly, you're fat, you're stupid, that shameful dialogue, I'll call it. Yeah. And then last year, no, it was a couple of years ago, and I was working with uh, my healer in Singapore. And I came across, I went into my meditation with my somatic healer and it's always in a meadow. I grew up in the mountains. So I always, my safe place, my happy place is a meadow, but I got into this meditation with my healer and I said, I'm not in the meadow right now. I'm in a different part of the meadow. And there was a building and inside the building down a long corridor, there was a very dark room. And there was, and when I first saw her, I said, there's a child in there, but she's feral. She's filthy and she's feral. And I coax her out of the room. This is all inside of meditation, right? I coax her out of the room. She's covered in bruises, filth, tattered clothes. Her hair's matted. Um, and she smells like sex. And I didn't know who she, I didn't, I couldn't figure out like, why aren't you in the nice part of the meadow? Why are you here? Why are you trapped here? What? And we started to have a conversation. And she's like, I'm, I said, why don't you come with me? Let's get out of here. I don't like this place. I don't like being here. She's like, I can't leave here. I'm dirty. I'm dirty. And I thought, oh God, I'm talking to my shame. That's when I first realized. And that's when I first felt the power of my shame that I hadn't known. I wasn't aware of it. It's, it's fast. I mean, shame fascinates me. Wow. So thank you for sharing that. Just because, I, I mean, I agree with Brene Brown's definition that shame is the belief that we are unworthy of love, connection, belonging. Yes. And it's really hard to ID. Yes. And, and I think most of us will be like, shame, no, I don't have any shame. But then there's certain moments, and they're not very long where you'll have thoughts like, oh, she'd be better off without me, or I'm no good in relationship. Yeah. Or, you know, some thought that says, I am not worthy of connection. Yes. And that's what you, I think you have to look out for. And it's fleeting and pernicious and hard to identify. It's But very destructive. It's the most destructive for me was my shame because it was that, it was that undertone throughout my life telling me that I was never good enough. So what yeah. does that look like from day to day? It looks like someone who will spend money they don't have, in my case, buying gifts for people to convince them to be my friend or to love me. It's being in bad relationships because I don't value myself. So shame bleeds into every part of your life. Uh, it's eating, it's compulsive eating um, so that I don't feel attractive because I'm, um, I'm I'm ashamed of who I am or I'm ashamed of my body. So let's it's it's shame is ever evolving. And what I discovered is that shame is more like a parasite than an altar. And it attached itself to my six-year-old altar because six was the first time 
that I was raped by my grandfather's penis. Before that, it was just digital, his hands, right? So in that moment, shame attached itself to six and destroyed six, like a parasite, just feeding off of her, destroying her body. I had permanent um, physical wounds inside my womb to the point where I couldn't conceive. And I discovered that much later in life, but that was all six. It was all six. So shame is the most complicated to, for me, it was the most complicated to understand. It was the most complicated to get to know. And in one meditation with six, you know, inside this really long meditation with her, I said, she's like, I can't get clean. I said, it won't. She's like, I won't come off. All the dirt won't. She's like, look, I keep trying, but it won't come off. And I said, that's okay. I'm dirty too, but it's okay. It's okay. I said, but I love you and it's, it's okay. Like I just kept hugging her and saying, I love you. And it doesn't matter if you're dirty. We're not dirty. We're okay. We're good. And then in this powerful moment, in this meditation, she and I ended up back in the nice part of the meadow and she was clean. And I was like, oh, oh, we're, we're clean now. And it was the first time I didn't get that overwhelming sense of shame and the voice in my head that was shame fueled about not being pretty enough, not being thin enough, not being whatever enough. Just pick something. Yeah. It really extinguished. And then, she, and then five and seven run up to her and they're like, we've been waiting for you. Do you want to go climb a tree? And she's like, yeah, I'd love to go climb a tree. And then they run off into the woods and there's climbing trees. And it's like, I'm lighter. And that hateful narrative I've had in my head since I was, what, six years old about not being pretty enough, tall enough, thin enough, whatever enough, just stopped. Amazing. Yeah, I, I got to say, it's hard to hear of your experience. Like, I'm really sorry you went through that. That's just terrible. It's terrible. It's truly, truly and not your fault. Terrible. And never my fault. And I, what's different is that I thought that because I knew it wasn't my fault, that I didn't carry shame. I didn't understand the fundamentals of shame. And last year, I Googled one night. Because I thought, you know what? I wonder if I have shame about this and I just don't know about it. I literally Googled, how do trauma survivors think about shame or something innocuous like that? They don't. (laughs) And it was a revelation. And I thought, oh my God, but I have, I'm carrying shame and I don't even know it. Yeah. And I learned about my shame narrative and what was, what was saying in my head. And then I learned the difference between six and the shame attached to her. When And I love your description of shame being a parasite kind of attached to six, mm. because it's interesting. I was just talking with a, she calls herself a shame guilt kind of expert. And she kind oh. of com, she combines shame and guilt saying yeah, shame is more unconscious, guilt is more conscious, but they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And her belief is that shame is, the, is a parasite that attaches onto us and oh. energy that fuels all other negative emotions. Because she was like, anger, I can trace it back to shame. Depression, I can trace it back to shame. Anxiety, shame. And I was like, huh. Well, if you think about, I mean, for me, 
Um, she sounds really interesting. I think about trauma is the root of all evil. And the first thing I think, and I'm not a doctor, but this is my theory. In sexual trauma, the first thing your body does is go, oh, you're damaged goods. You're shameful. No matter how old you are, it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's what your that's what your mind that's what your mind decides to do, right? Just, just because. And so from that shame, you get everything else, right? So you get the anger of it, the sadness of it, the fear of it, the whatever of it. It all like a tree. It starts with the trauma, and then shame kicks into gear, and then it just starts to bleed. And it touches on every single fiber of your life. And if you wonder why, like I am now very clear about why I chose the men I've chosen in the past. I get it now. I get why I was making the choices I was making. I was making it through this traumatized lens. And what's interesting now is that the lenses have been removed. Those five, six, seven, and 13 don't exist anymore. I'm not living out of my amygdala all day long, every single day. I'm now living out of the front of my brain in the present. Mm -hmm. So living mindfully and in the present and not responding to every single situation from the past, but from the present is very interesting after not yeah, ever doing it. And then to also try to figure out now, well, if I'm not this traumatized person living my life, am I still interested in being a film and TV producer? Because that job requires an enormous amount of control, right? I'm the boss on the set. And which your anger served you. My anger served me very no. well. Yes. And, my, and the reason I'm good at logistics is resilience and resilience comes from surviving. So I've just did a little bit of a, a video about the fact that do stop congratulating me on my ability to figure things out and to always come through situations because that resilience that you're complimenting me about is actually a symptom of trauma. And people who are hyper resilient, I I hope that they understand that the reason that they're hyper resilient is because they're not living in the present. Because in the present, you're sloppy. You get to cry and you get to be upset and you ask for help and you don't always constantly, you're not always constantly able to figure everything out on your own. But trauma survivors, we are hyper resilient because we had to be, we had to survive. And we live in this heightened state of survival and that comes across as resilience. And what I'm discovering about myself is I'm not this control freak anymore. I don't need to be in command of a very large film set to feel complete, to feel complete. And I don't want to be hyper resilient. So I'm asking for help if I need help. And I'm trying to learn how to be vulnerable. And it's a whole new world for me because this is, you know, I'm not used to this. Yeah. Well, thank you for being vulnerable. And isn't asking for help the hardest thing you've ever done? Yeah, because it's, I don't trust you. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm projecting. I <laughs> no, I just, it's, I ask for help, but then I wonder what you're like, if, well, if you agree to help me, why would you agree to help me? What's in it for you? And what do you, I'm yeah. still learning how to trust. Trust is my, my new journey for 23. When the fundamentals of trust are established in like around the age of five. Well, I didn't get the opportunity to build that that foundation because I started being abused when I was five. So I'm now 
I told my therapist, I, I want to understand trust. He's like, well, let's do X, Y, and Z. I said, no, you're misunderstanding me. I don't even know what it means. So tell me a couple of books I can read that actually explain what trust is. And then I can start to, to decide how to apply it in my life. Yeah, so, it makes me think of... Um... So on Apple TV, there's this new animated short that just won an Oscar. I think it's yes. the boy, the mole, the fox, yeah, the, and the horse. Yeah. And at one point, the boy is sitting on top of the horse and he asks him, what's the bravest thing you've ever said? Yeah. And the horse says, help. Help. The bravest thing I've ever done is ask for help. That's true. Because and you I'm have just like, whoa. You have to let down all of your defense mechanisms when you ask yeah. for help. And then you have to be present enough to receive the help and you have to be able to understand that when people offer their help it's not going to be perfect it's going to be what help means to them yeah and unfortunately i think trauma survivors we're not really good at being specific so we'll just take whatever someone throws at us so if if if, if i ask for help and you say, well, I know what I know what help looks like. I'm gonna come and um I'm gonna help you by taking over some task that I need done. Okay, but that's not that's your definition of help. That's not my definition of help. You know, and I think about when trauma survivors ask for help, it's hard because we don't necessarily know how to be specific, because we don't know how to set boundaries, we don't know what we actually want, what we actually deserve. So we kind of can just go with the flow. Yeah. What we deserve. That's a big one. Yeah. Because if you don't feel like you deserve anything. Whatever you get is scraps. I'll take the scraps. Right. I'll take the scraps. Especially in in relationships. I'll take the scraps. So let me circle back to this idea of trust. What have you learned about trust starting at at ground zero? I've learned that... For me, my definition of my idea, sense of trust comes out of a sense of safety. And if you can make me feel safe, that's the first step I'll take with you to trusting you. And what does that entail, that feeling of safety? Right. So that, which is a great question, because I think about relationships the most when I think about safety and what is, what is it, what does it mean for me to feel safe? So I thought about, okay, um, in a big picture, if I'm in a relationship, if if I can rely on you to check the locks every night before we go to bed, you've just scored some big points with me because you're letting me know I'm going to make sure we're safe tonight. And this this might sound antiquated or whatever. This is for me, right? This is what I need, right? Yeah. Uh, if you drive my car once a week to make sure that nothing sounds nothing sounded funny, nothing going on with that car, you're letting me know. I thought about your safety today and I'm making sure you're safe. Um, so I have, I have definitions of what safety feels like to me in my environment. And then I have definitions of what safety feels like if I'm with you in public. So if I'm out with you and there's nothing more reassuring to me than a man's hand on my back. And I don't know why I can't explain it to you. That's very reassuring to me. I'm here. I'm with you. I value you. And I'm here. I'm here to protect you. Again, it might sound antiquated, but that's what I feel. I don't think so. I mean, I think it goes back to that saying of time and attention are the currency of relationship. 
Yeah. And and so it lets you know that they're there, they're present, yeah. and looking out for you. I, I also think there's a beyond beyond physical safety, I think there's a big piece of emotional safety. Yeah. Where that person's emotionally predictable. They're not yes. emotionally volatile. They're not, you know, such a good point. Calling me names. They're yeah. I can trust their responses more or less. Um, yeah. And then I think you could say there's maybe other pieces. I don't know. Spiritual safety could be one. Uh, relational safety that the person's not going anywhere. Um, there's all kinds. Yeah. And I, it's interesting that you brought up a really good point, And that is the emotional safety. I grew up in a house where my mother liked to slam kitchen cupboard doors as her way to tell everybody I'm in a bad mood. She was incapable of saying I'm having a hard day. Right. And she's 75 and whatever. Right. So if I know now that if I'm begin to meet someone and they cannot express how they're feeling, but they have to slam a door. I'm out. I'm out. See you later. If you have to raise your voice, I'm out. So the mantra is use your words. Yeah. <laughs> use your words. <laughs> and I could never survive in an a situation or relationship where someone had to physically express their feelings in a, in a way that made me feel like, I don't know what you're about to do. I, I, which, which doesn't mean that you have to be a robot. It just means that you have to be able to regulate yourself on some level so that when you come into my environment, I physically and mentally feel like I trust you and I feel safe. So I can trust you. And I know that, um, I don't do well with men who, don't acknowledge me. Don't don't wake up in the morning and say good morning. And it's you have to see me. I have to know that you see me. Now every and I think that every trauma survivor has their own definition of what safety looks and feels and sounds like. And I think that's a really important thing for men to maybe and women to think about and talk about if they can is if a trauma survivor is brave enough to share their trauma story with their bed partner, for example, then try to have the conversation of, okay, well, what does safe look and feel and sound like to you? Because right. I want to create that environment with you. Because if I'm not, if I don't feel safe, I've been in relationships where I didn't feel safe. Not because I was being harmed, but because the behaviors I need to reinforce a sense of safety just weren't being used. And so I think what's really tricky is that I can have sex with someone and put on a great show <laughs> and be in there and, and have a good time. And you'll have no idea that I'm sitting outside of myself mm -hmm. because you've haven't used some words that let me know that you're going to keep me safe. You haven't kept me present. So I've disassociated and I've left the room. You'll mm -hmm. never know. And that's really complicated, I think, for people to understand. And it's complicated for survivors to talk about and to work through. But I think now I'm in a place where, you know, the next time I have a, a bed partner, I can actually say, look, if I'm not, if I'm not saying a couple of these things throughout our time together. You need to stop. We need to stop. We need to stop. And you need to make sure that I'm with you right now and that I haven't disappeared. You know? well, I think it's a great point because I've heard this many times throughout the years of 
I think it's almost more common for people to be out of the room when having sex than yeah. in the room with their partner. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's hard for many of us to be present. Yeah, I agree. And, and so I think the other thing that I was thinking as you were speaking is I think part of safety may be being seen, heard, and validated in terms mm. of how you feel. Mm-hmm. So you said someone seeing you and hearing what you're saying, like truly hearing. Yes. And, and then validating, you know, wow, I could see where that would be really frustrating for you, or I could see where, you know, that would really stress you out or, and, and just having someone to understand how you feel and parrot it back to you. Yeah. And I think it's a heavy lift <laughs> for anyone to be that aware and that present all the time. And I get that it's a heavy lift, right? And then you add trauma survivor to it. it, it it's even it's an even heavier lift. So there has to be lift from both sides, right? When I don't think we're all present all the time. I mean, most no, people there's no way. But I think, you know, yeah. it's increasing the percentage of time that you are present. Yeah. And <clears throat> just just knowing yourself, doing some of the work for yourself to know, um, you know what? I'm slipping right now. One of the things that I've done with uh, my uh, someone I was dating in the past is not because women, you know, we're by and large, we're really good at just going in and started talking, talk, 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 talk. And I think that one of the things that I learned to do with someone I was with for quite a while when I lived in Kenya was to, to go to him and say, can you listen to me right now? Is it a good time right now? Can you, are you able to listen to me right now? And he had the right to say yes or no. Yeah. And if he said no, he reminded me, not because I don't care about you, but because I'm not able to do that right now. It's a great question. I, I, Gottman's got a, a soft startup, which is, you know, hey, honey, I have something important to, you, to talk to you about. Is now a good time? And yeah. you've got permission to say yes or no for a variety of reasons, right? You're tired, you're drunk, you're stressed, you're thinking whatever. about work. But whatever. you want to make sure your partner's in a spot that they can actually hear you. Yeah. And I needed to be 100% of the time. No, how could it be? But I also needed to be reminded in his, you know, rejection, which is how I receive it first. Mm-hmm. I needed to, he needed to remind me, not because I don't love you, but because I'm not able to do that right now. I yeah. needed to be reminded it wasn't personal. Excellent communication skills. Yeah, we worked, that, that was one of the things uh, that was good about that relationship. <laughs> yep, there was a lot um, of things that can, weren't so can great. Can I ask you a personal <laughs> question and feel All free to pass on this? Yeah. Um, how is it as a sexual abuse survivor yeah. getting, getting back into and enjoying sex? I love that question. And I'm really grateful for that question. And I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. I, one of the, when I first went into therapy when I was about 19, 20 years old, uh, and I had just revealed I was abused and I was talking to my therapist and I said, I said, people expect me to not like sex because I was sexually abused. And he admitted, he's like, yeah. He's like, that's just a, a stigma that gets attached to you, that because you were sexually assaulted, you don't want to have sex. You don't know how to like sex. And I said, well, you know, I love sex. I love, the, I love all of, everything about it. It's messy. It's crazy. It's all the things, right? And it feels good and all that stuff. And I said, it's hard for me to, it's, it's hard for me to explain to uh, a lover, partner, whatever you want to call them, that even though this happened to me, I still, I very much enjoy intimacy, right? And I think that it 
takes a lot of conversation to convince someone that when I'm having sex with you, I'm not, I'm not, you're not traumatizing me. I'm not constantly sexually traumatized. I was traumatized sexually, but I'm not now. And so uh, it's actually really common for, for example, rapes, rape survivors to go like within a couple of weeks after being assaulted to go look, to go look for someone to have sex with. And there's a whole thing about why rape survivors do that. So sex is never complicated for me. What's complicated for me and what I'm learning how to, to do is choosing to be with someone and creating boundaries and not just losing myself and being grateful that I'm in the room with you. That's, mm -hmm. that's the part that I need to build. It's not the having sex and having fun part. That's the easy part. The hard part is, have you earned this? Have you earned your time with me? And, mm -hmm. and, and not in a bitchy kind of, well, that sounds like you know, it's a way, self-worth it self piece to it, right? Yeah. So sex was always something that I still totally enjoy. And I never, I never was confused about being raped versus having consensual sex. I was never confused in my head about what those two things were or what they are. And one feels good and one obviously is completely abhorrent. But I never had that issue. But it's definitely every partner that I've shared my story with, that's their first question is, what do you think about when we're having sex? I don't think about being raped. I think about you or the laundry or yeah, it, well, and I know it's the, yeah. For the explanation, I, know, I appreciate. I know it's hard for people to understand, and I think and I think what's sad is that men, my, the men in my life, when I've shared my story with them, they immediately want to try to fix something. And that's I love we do. That's what you guy. do. And I love the fact that men, <laughs> by the way, I'm all about men fixing stuff, like fix everything well, that, you that's can. That's fine. I think we just need other gears besides fixing stuff. Yeah. You know, or in addition to. And it's try it's very difficult. My my lover in Kenya, it was really hard for him to accept that there was nothing to fix. Hmm. And I wasn't able to articulate at the time that you know how you fix me? You make me feel safe and cherished and adored and loved and special. And that's how you fix me. It's not, there's, there's nothing to fix beyond just loving me. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm aware of time. And yeah. one of the questions I wanted to get to, and we might've covered this already. So I just want to make sure we cover it completely is what role can men play in supporting sexual abuse survivors? Is there more that we didn't cover? Um, I th I love that. I just love that question because I think it's important. And I think that men first understand that the numbers are bad. If it's one in three or one in four women in the United States have experienced some sort of sexual violence in their life, chances are the women in your family, the women you've dated, and the woman you're married to has endured some sort of sexual violence. Yeah. And just acknowledge that that's real. And then ask, you know, I'm aware that this is prolific and a problem. And is there anything that you would like to share and trust me with? I may or may not be able to do that. It depends on a lot of things. Yeah. 
But if I am able to share it with you, just know that for in my own experience, the number one thing men can do is to find out what my definition of safe looks, sounds, and feels like, and do your best to deliver some part of that to me as often as you can. And just know that I'm going to express behaviors. I'm going to lose my shit. I'm going to do all kinds of things that don't make sense. And there's a strong possibility, in my case anyway, that I was delivering that response through a traumatized lens. Mm -hmm. And usually it had to do with, I'm feeling attacked. I'm feeling unsafe. I'm now going to go into my caveman mode and I'm going to come out swinging because I'm going to survive this. I'm a survivor. So watch me survive this argument, this confrontation, this whatever. I'll survive it. And I might have the most irrational, crazy, batshit reaction to something very innocuous. But understand that it's coming through this lens. And, you know, that's, I think men, if you could just try to take pieces of that with you, that would be yeah, helpful. And, you know, getting back to the numbers, kind of circling back to that, my understanding is that one in four number is women that self-report. That's right. Having been sexually abused or experiencing sexual sexual violence, which means it's an underestimation. That's right. What the actual number is. That's right. I personally don't know any women who haven't endured some form of sexual assault or harassment. Oh, harassment. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which is which is traumatizing and disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, um, like I even my daughter who's 17, you know, she would go jogging. And guys would catcall her from their car. And I'm like, like, what the hell? What do you think that's going to accomplish? I don't think they're thinking much of anything when they do that. I don't, it's, it's bizarre behavior to me personally. It's bizarre. Um, I, you know, the, my biggest concern is that uh, I don't feel like, and I might get some strong pushback on this. I don't feel like women can be expected to stop rape culture. Correct. I don't think we created it. Yes, women do sexually assault people, but the numbers are very small. And I think that, I hope that men, you know, we're not in having a beer with all of you or in the locker room or wherever this happens when jokes get told that aren't really funny. So the next time you hear someone tell an off joke about sexual assault or sexual harassment or a woman's body, just know that there's no way for women to regulate that conversation and that men have to ultimately decide that they want rape culture to stop. And if you want to stop dating and marrying traumatized women, then you need to stop it. Stop traumatizing them. Stop traumatizing them and then expecting a different result from us. Yeah. And and I think, you know, a big part of this is that man box culture, which I talk about frequently Mm. where, you know, we are socialized to believe these rules about what it means to be a real man And some of those rules are completely messed up. Like men dominate women, men don't back down, men view women as objects, like some really messed up stuff. And and it varies, Um, but it's the the whole, that whole patriarchy is uh, problematic to me. Yeah. And I also, women, you know, also give guys a break too. (laughs) I think that there's two sides to the conversation. Men have a lot of work to do. Women, I hope, 
continue that more voices get added. You've been very kind to have me on the podcast talking about a very female centric, you know, issue um, on a men's podcast, but also women take a, take as much as you can take agency of your experience. And instead of allowing it to bleed down through the generation, stop the bleed, communicate with the men in your life, be it the men in your family or your partner or whoever it is. And also understand that men need support too. And men yeah. need kindness too. And I, you know, men are wonderful. They're wonderful beings. And it's just, I just, there's a lot of rhetoric right now about, it feels like men versus women. Yeah. Well, and I do think there's a lot of really good men out there to your point. Loads of good men 80, out there. 85, 90%. There's yeah. just a small percentage that kind of screws it up for all of us. Then that's true for everybody, right? It's well, always. I don't know about my percentages, but. But I hear you. Yeah. And I just, I, it is, it needs, I hope there's more dialogue. I hope there's more men being asked questions like, well, have you ever asked a woman if she's been sexually assaulted? And if you asked her, were you prepared to hear the answer? Because if you're going to ask the question and then shut down and not listen and not have some tools ready because you didn't want to Google or YouTube it before you did the conversation, be more responsible than that, right? Do, Do a little more lift than just asking because you read it on a blog somewhere. Like, yeah. Well, Rebecca, thank you very much for your time and for your vulnerability and sharing your story. I appreciate it greatly. Thank and you. where can people get a hold of the book? Uh, go to my website, RebeccaEChandler.com. And there's lots of links to lots of places you can buy uh, my book, as well as the journal I created about healing trauma. Excellent. Thank you so much. And that is it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like this episode, please feel free to like, rate, review, and share the podcast. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 